Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm ABC 27's Valerie Pritchett, sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. So, have you ever heard of functional medicine? It takes a look at the whole body, especially when it comes to chronic illnesses. Joining me now is Dr. John Neely with Turnpaw Health and Wellness in the studio. Now, Dr. Neely was the Chief of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and he's now a practitioner of functional medicine. So, Dr. Neely, thank you for joining us. Thank you. How did you make that jump, that transition? Well, I've had an interesting journey. You know, for over 30 years, I took care of children with cancer. And usually people kind of lower their eyes when I say that and say, this must have been a very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And it is a difficult uh, uh, profession, but it is so rewarding, and I was never sorry that I've, I did that, because we cure about 80% of our patients with cancer. Mm-hmm. And But what I was finding over time is, number one, I was getting a little tired of doing the inpatient overnight call type things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also became aware that, um, particularly with chronic diseases and particularly in adults, um, we our system just is failing the patients. And uh, so I switched to looking at a more systems thinking type of medicine, and that's where my journey began. So what is functional medicine? Well, first of all, functional medicine is uh, science-based, mm-hmm. just like regular medicine. We use the same literature, and we look at it uh, in maybe a different way. We talk about evidence-based medicine in conventional medicine, and we're evidence-based too, but in the classic sense, we look at scientific literature where appropriate. We take into account our clinical expertise, and most importantly with our mix, we take into account what the patient's preferences may be in their treatment. So if I were to come into your office and I said, oh, you know, I've been having gastroenterology you know, problems. What would you look at then? Right. Well, what we do, first of all, is really listen to the patient. We take a detailed timeline of when they felt well, when they started to not feel well, and have the patient tell their story. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what happens. I would say nine times out of 10, the patient stops me about five minutes into this, sometimes breaks into tears and says, you're the first person that's listened to me. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the system that doctors are placed under now where they, the literature says we take about 15 seconds before we interrupt the patient and go on uh, with what we think is already going on. So we listen. Then I start to look at uh, what, not the usual way, but what are the systems that the body uses to function? And that's where functional medicine comes in. So, for example, how is the patient making energy? Do you know how many people come in that say they're tired? Mm. (laughs) Well, that's one issue. What is the structure of the patient's muscles, bones, joints, uh, vessels, and things like that that helps maintain the body? And what what chemical signals does the body use to maintain itself, like hormones, neurotransmitters? But most importantly, it's how we as 
individual people interface with the environment. And that is, what kind of food are we taking in, good or bad, and how are we absorbing it? What is our immune system system doing to defend ourselves from the variety of things out there now, and how do we repair ourselves? And thirdly, what toxins are in the environment that we need to take care of getting rid of? So do you use a mix of like, conventional medication and uh, holistic therapies? Like, what, are, what do you put together? Supplements? You know, it's interesting to me because I have, of course, a prescription pad and can do e-prescribing like everybody else. But Mm -hmm. I think I've, in two years of doing this in my new practice, I have probably written half a dozen or a dozen prescriptions. We just don't use regular medicines that often. I will when appropriate, but most, and I do use some supplements when appropriate, but I usually tell patients that what I want them to spend their money on is some nutritious food, and we talk about how to alter their diet. So that really does make a difference. You are what you eat, as they say. Well, and that goes back to Hippocrates. You Mm -hmm. are what you eat. Let, Let your food be your medicine, is what he advised. And what's the best way you think to do that? I know for a lot of people, going out and buying fresh fruits and veggies or organic can be expensive. What are some of the ways and tips that you can give people that they can actually eat healthy? And what is it, a paleo diet? You know, Atkins, you hear of all these different diets. What do you do? Oh, the diet industry is so confusing to people. I mean, I think one of the big topics, of course, is gluten. And if you look out at the grocery stores, the manufacturers certainly have caught onto this because now there's row after row of what I call kind of gluten junk food. It is gluten-free, and it's very important for people that really have celiac disease. Mm, mm-hmm. And there probably are 30 to 50% of people that feel better off of gluten, and I oftentimes prescribe that as a trial, but there are many people that do tolerate gluten. So it's kind of confusing to people. And then there's, do I do Atkins? Do I do Paleo? Do I do Weight Watchers and such? So what I do when I talk to a patient is look in detail about, well, when did they start feeling badly mm-hmm. and, and review in detail what their diet is. I have them do a three-day, usually sometimes one-week diet history so I can review that. And we talk, the, and then I do some testing to, to point out that they are deficient in something, for instance, a vitamin, or they are deficient in an essential fatty acid. There are tests for those things. And when you see the numbers, mm-hmm. the patients then begin to realize, wow, I am really not doing a very good job with my with my food. And then we talk about how do you how do you go to the store and how do you select do the you right shop? things. And of course, incorporating exercise as well. Exercise is extremely important in a, a whole variety of ways from a systems thinking standpoint. Mm-hmm. For example, I was just back from a, a great meeting on the plasticity of the brain for healing itself and what we can do about Alzheimer's and what we can do about some of the other neurologic things. And what came out was the number one thing that influences brain regeneration is exercise. And it doesn't really take that much, does it? 30 minutes a day of something brisk like a walk or? Yeah, I think that uh, what I generally recommend is that somebody does about 30 minutes of walking enough to get their pulse up a bit. They don't have to do massive cardio. Mm -hmm. And also I think resistance training is very helpful. And as one ages up, they need to be thinking about what do they do for balance and core muscles. Oh, especially so it's lifting those weights. (laughs) Making sure you get that in as well. Right. What do you, you probably have naysayers. What do you say to them about this type of medicine? 
Well, you know, I think um, I, it's part of the system that we have in medicine nowadays. There's a great book that people probably should read. It's by Robert Pearl, who is the director of a very large Kaiser Permanente system out in the insurance system, and he has a book called Mistreated, and he talks about how doctors are caring and uh, hospitals are caring but and, and such, but the system is evolved over time so that the caring is taken out of uh, the equation. Interesting. So you are listening to Smart Talk on WITF, and we're talking with Dr. John Neely, a practitioner of functional medicine. So what are the changes that you're seeing when it comes to people and how they want to heal themselves? Conventional medicine versus functional medicine. Well, for one thing, I'm probably seeing a somewhat biased group of people because mm-hmm. people that come to see me are uh, people that are in dire straits. And they usually are quite ill with something. And they have been to multiple specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they oftentimes come in with multiple medications and some cross-reactivity of the medications. And they're frustrated because they don't feel like they've been listened to or that they're getting better. So. Those are the you know those are the kind of patients that come to see me. What I would like, and I think what I'm what we're seeing in the functional medicine field is we're moving more and more into how can we apply these things to preventative medicine. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to see. Prevention's key too. Yeah. Yes, it is. And you know the problem is from our again the medical system standpoint is. Our insurance programs, et cetera, are more than happy to do coronary artery bypass or do a stent or things like that, but they're not rewarding the, the general practitioners, the family medicine practitioners for preventative care or taking the time to talk to a patient about preventative care. Yeah. What are you seeing more of these days, the different illnesses and the chronic illnesses? It seems like every time you turn around, you hear of people, especially with autoimmune disease, it's more and more becoming prevalent. Right. I think that the um, probably the two things that I see the most are some kind of GI issue. Mm. And, and the, it is put into the category of irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. And the gastroenterologists, frankly, are not sure what to do with this. And, it, and they have many, many, many more difficult things to deal with. So I think mostly they're happy to have us work with this IBS, which many, many people have. But then the other are these, which are a real puzzle, are unusual reactions we're seeing to people with their environment immunologically. For instance, a number of children who now are developing eczema and asthma and things like that, mm-hmm. it seems to be skyrocketing. The number of people that have autoimmune thyroid disease and skin diseases and things like that are going way up. And it appears to be that, that for lots of reasons, there are imbalances in the immune system that we work on trying to correct. How much does stress play a role? I mean, we lead such very active, active lives. And, uh, you know, especially, I know, even with my friends, they had the election, and I've had friends unfriend each other on Facebook over what's been going on. It's just been such a, a charged environment for many, and they're always on that constant alert status with their body. What are you seeing? Have you seen patients that have come in, especially like maybe election-related issues or just, you know, regular work issues? What are you seeing? Well, one of the things that's happening in the functional medicine field is we're moving away from being kind of biochemically, Mm -hmm. physical body related, which we still emphasize, to looking at the internal self. What is it that we have 
learn to develop over time is our sense of self. And then how we relate to other people like our family, like our community, mm -hmm. uh, God, uh, and, and various things like that, or the universe, however somebody believes themselves spiritually. And when there is an imbalance in how they're relating to their environment, maybe it's the election, maybe it's a problem with their family, I spend a lot of time talking to people about where do you stand on this? What are your beliefs? How are you doing with, with your family, with the community and all that? Because when somebody has a high stress imbalance of how they're feeling spiritually or mentally, mm -hmm. it feeds back to affect the physical body. It's called mind-body medicine. Right. I was going to ask you that. How much um, do you see when it comes to your patients and faith plays a role in their healing? Well, it's quite variable. And one of the things that I always uh, do and encourage anybody to do in the medical field is to sit down and say, tell me about your beliefs. And, you know, sometimes people feel guilty. Well, I haven't been to church for, you know, and things like uh -huh. that. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm just asking, do, are they, do they have a belief that there's more out there than just themselves? And, and how does that fit in? And some people are extremely religious about that or extremely spiritual. Other people aren't. But you have to understand where your patient's coming from and, and then explore as part of our healing process how we can identify the issues and help them cope with those things so that their body gets better in addition to their mind. Yeah. Give us some explanation, or not explanation, but give us some um, scenarios of some of the patients that you've had and you've helped. Like you've mm -hmm. seen them come in maybe with something chronic, and then what they are like today. Mm -hmm. Well, I can think of two examples. Uh, one is I see a fair number of patients uh, come in uh, after cancer, mm -hmm. and what they're concerned about is, uh, number one, how to heal after cancer, and number two, how to keep the cancer from coming back. Mm -hmm. Those are typical things. And so we spend a lot of time uh, talking about where the imbalances are in their body post-treatment and then how we can what can heal them. And I oftentimes find that we can uh, do um, a lot of things with um, just helping their gut heal and, and things like that. Another example are, and I, are people that come in and they really can't identify what's going on. And we sometimes, you know, we have to identify a disease right. and that's part of insurance requirements. But sometimes there's not a specific disease that we just sometimes call it, we don't feel good-itis. <laughs> and, um, yeah. But by listening to the patient's story, things fall together. Like I had a young lady, well, you know, in the 40s, come that's in. still young. Yes. <laughs> uh, but as a pediatrician, that seems old. Yeah, you know? that's true. Uh, and, uh, but I, um, she came in and said, I am just, I don't know what to do. I'm gaining weight. My energy is down, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we talked about when this started. And it was sometimes kicked off by having children and then, and then some early menopause kind mm -hmm. of like things. That, and, um, but when it came down to it, uh, we did some basic restructuring of what she was doing for diet, in particular, getting off of a very addictive thing called sugar. Yeah, and, that's a tough one, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is everywhere. very tough. It's, uh, and, but, you know, after mod basically just modifying her diet and talking about stress reduction and getting out to even just by starting the walk and things like that, she came in to see me after three months of this, and she came in and said, I am a new person. Wow. I've lost 24 pounds, and it's, it's like... I did. I tried this diet, but I didn't really um, 
officially want to diet. You know, I just changed my lifestyle and, and nutrition. My energy level went up and my thinking process went up and, and I'm better. And that's all I needed to do. Two right. visits and she's on her own. And you have done a little bit of specialty in women's health issues, correct? I have. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, to me... Uh, there, there's kind of two areas that I've worked with, and I do rely a fair bit on my colleagues in the community that mm-hmm. are uh, uh, functional medicine uh, gynecologists, for example, that really help me with, with some of the women's health issues like polycystic ovary syndrome or hormonal imbalances. But the two areas that I look at are uh, both for people at risk for breast cancer and people that have had breast cancer that are recovering is how is their body handling estrogens? Because estrogens can be made by the body, they can be taken in from the environment, they can be, there can be artificial estrogens called xenoestrogens, meaning foreign, that can come from plastics and things like that. Mm. And you want to look at uh, the array of uh, not only how much estrogen is still in the body after breast cancer, but how are they metabolizing it, detoxifying it. Estrogen is important but it's supposed to touch a receptor on a cell and then leave and be detoxified. And there are very specific ways the body does that. And if there's a defect in that and they have unusually high amounts of estrogen metabolites, they're at risk for cancer. So I work on ways to help them recover from that. And then I occasionally get involved with women that want to come in and talk about uh, so-called bioidentical hormones. Right. Uh, that helps through menopause, correct? Right. And the standard uh, generally in gynecologists is you use some of these so-called artificial uh, uh, estrogens. Right. And, uh, you know, the the classic example is something called Premarin. Mm-hmm. That actually stands for pregnant mare urine. Okay. And that's where Premarin <laughs> came from because they collect these uh, non-bioidentical hormones from mares, oh, and that's used. But the, uh, the, in the bioidentical world, we say, you know, it's important to think about the proper health because we could over-medicate somebody. Mm-hmm. But the proper health to have somebody get through menopause, and the I think to me the big advantage is I can actually measure the estrogen progesterone levels and mm-hmm. adjust my therapy accordingly. Interesting. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Valerie Pritchett with ABC 27, sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. We're discussing functional medicine with Dr. John Neely, a practitioner of functional medicine. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. And we're talking to Dr. John Neely about functional medicine. And let's talk a little bit about sleep and the importance of getting it. A lot of people pretty much go to work sleep deprived or go through their day sleep deprived. And that can really cause problems for you later down the line, not only, you know, immediately, but later down the line. Well, a key thing that I always ask whenever I interview a patient is, how are you sleeping? And uh, kind of in two ways. One is, do they have trouble getting to sleep? 
Uh, and then are they able to stay asleep mm-hmm. and wake up in a rested fashion? <clears throat> and as you said, you would be surprised how many people come in and say, I am just not sleeping. I uh, wake up exhausted, and then I can not get through the day. Right. Now, the it's more than just telling somebody take a sleeping pill or take melatonin or something like that. It's, again, getting back to understanding the patient's story and so I always listen in detail to how they, when they were sleeping well, when they stopped sleeping well, what were the circumstances, and then I repeat the story back to the patient so I'm sure I understand this. And then we talk about what we can do about sleep health <clears throat> because sometimes this is a matter of addressing issues with relationships with work or family or something like that. Sometimes it is really an imbalance going on in the body that we can measure and then we can uh, work on modifying. And of course, we'll always take your comments and questions. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And so, again, we were talking about the um, importance of sleep and getting just taking care of your whole body. What about meditation or what other things do you offer to patients, Uh, maybe even like acupuncture or, you know, some other type of therapies? There are a whole array of things that that I recommend. I do recommend that somebody uh, begin a meditative practice, even if they have a busy day, to take 15 minutes or half an hour to do that. And I particularly like uh, some kind of meditative practice that perhaps they can have a coach do or or learn it from a tape. And also yoga is an extremely Mm, uh, worthwhile thing to do. There's particularly a type of yoga called kundalini yoga, Mm -hmm. which some people have heard of, but it's different than the usual because it's highly meditative and it also offers um, a uh, an exercise program that's pretty gentle. But you end up after half an hour or an hour of that feeling totally relaxed and it's very health promoting. Hmm, I have to look into that. So what do you do to keep yourself as a doctor, mind, body, spirit, medically intact? <laughs> Well, you know, I think it's a big problem for physicians in general when you look at the burnout rate for physicians Mm. and everything. And one Mm. of the reasons when I've gone to the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, programs to get certified is I see physicians that come there to be certified who just say, I am not doing medicine the way I used to. I need to have a new balance. And that's what they're seeking. So that's part of what I did. I said, I I am going to do a medicine that I find equally rewarding to what I've done in the past, but different. I ascribe to a diet that I consider to be healthy. I do eat a paleo diet, and paleo basically means I really, I I like to avoid grains and things like that, partly because my GI tract likes it better, but partly because (laughs) I feel mentally better on it. And then just loads and loads of vegetables, some healthy proteins, and some healthy fats. So so personally, I do that, and uh, my wife and I love to cook, and uh, we've gotten pretty good at paleo cooking. It's not, and it's not that hard. But people do have to cook for themselves rather than getting the something in a box, um, and then working on a regular exercise program. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned before, this has to be cardio, and it needs to be some resistance training, right. mm-hmm. uh, and we do that on a regular basis. And then trying to get sleep, yeah, which is which that's, is that's a tough still, one. Still hard. Yeah, I know. For me, I uh, when I'm 
on ABC 27 News at 5 and 7. What people don't see behind the scenes is that in commercial breaks, I'm actually doing a jog on the set. And I can rack up. I did the morning show the other day, two and a half hours. I racked up 5,000 steps just doing that. And it energizes me. It keeps me awake. And I believe it brings more oxygen to the brain. It makes me focus a little bit better. So if you can skip the, put those in and out, you know. Well, so I, we, I do have it, a, we do have a question for you. Okay. So this is from Lancaster. And it's Ray. And wants to know, why, what does the doctor know about fibromyalgia? Okay. Well, you've hit on a, v- a very, very uh, difficult topic, uh, and uh, because we don't really know how to identify what's going on, uh, fibr- fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue kind of go together, and I basically peg it into an inability to make the proper energy and having increased inflammation. So I address the issues from the patient's story on how to reduce those things. Excellent. Good to know. Hopefully that answered uh, Ray's question. Good. So we want to thank you for joining us today. We've been speaking about functional medicine with Dr. John Neely. And we are going to have a next guest coming in. But we want to thank you for being here with us today. We really appreciate your time. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm ABC 27's Valerie Pritchett. And you're listening to Smart Talk. I'm Valerie Pritchett with ABC 27, sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. So our pets, well, they definitely capture our hearts. They're part of our family and probably do just about anything to save them. There are medications and therapies to extend their shorter lifespans compared to ours. But how much is too much? Well, we're talking about this topic and ways to keep your pet healthier. And joining us today is Dr. Christy Bunner. She's with Ross Moyne Animal Emergency Trauma and Dr. Alan Kermeyer, Chief of Staff at Animal Hospital of Rye. And we're going to welcome your questions and comments. You'll probably have a lot with dogs and cats. Call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. And again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So thank you for joining us today. We're going to um, start with Dr. Christy. Tell me a little bit about Ross Moyne and what you do there. So you're more emergency medicine. That's the running in at 2 in the morning with a problem with Fido. <laughs> That's right. So we are always open. We're a 24-7 emergency hospital. So, you know, we see uh, emergencies anywhere from, you know, you have a pet that has, you know, some vomiting or diarrhea to, you know, more serious uh, injuries, you know, pets that may have been hit by a, a car or, you know, certainly um, collapsed or have heart failure, chronic diseases and things like that. So we're certainly there to uh, help you know, uh, make your pet comfortable, but also figure out what's going on with them and provide them the support and care that they need to, you know, help stabilize them and, and uh, you know, figure out what's going on. And Dr. Allen, tell us about, I just use first names here, but Dr. Kermeyer, tell us a little bit about your facility and what you offer. Well, our facility is a little different. We're not a general practice uh, for the most part, although we do do some general work. Mm-hmm. Uh, my area in particular is mostly cancer work and internal medicine and imaging. We do a lot of ultrasound, uh, endoscopy, and uh, CT or CAT scan imaging. I have another doctor that does primarily soft tissue surgery, tumor surgeries, uh, acupuncture and pain management. 
We have an orthopedic surgeon that's there. Uh, we also have a very busy rehabilitation therapy center. So let's talk a little bit about the therapies that are offered. I think a lot of times people don't realize it's the same treatments that people can get their pets can get too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, particularly from my end with the cancer, most of the drugs uh, are made for people. There's very few or actually primarily two drugs that are made for dogs specifically. And so um, tell us a little bit about the treatment for dogs when it comes to cancer. I know a friend of mine's dog is on cancer treatments now. And so what's the regimen? And, and is it just as tough for them as it is for humans when they have to go through chemo and different treatments? It's no different in that there's different chemotherapy protocols for different types of cancer. Mm -hmm. Some are extremely well tolerated. Some have some side effects that are manageable. Our purpose is not to make them miserable. It's to provide an excellent quality of life. And the vast majority of the dogs that are in there on chemo just fly through it like nothing. Dogs don't complain like people. Uh, you know, they don't lay in bed and say, oh, I'm on chemotherapy, I feel terrible. Yeah. They deal with it. So while they may be a little nauseous and they need nausea medication or a diet change for diarrhea, they, they get through it and they do well. And when it comes to coming in at four in the morning with an emergency, what are the things that you're seeing the most, especially this time of the year? This time of year, we see a variety of different things, you know. Uh, certainly right now, we see a lot of dog fights. You know, everybody's out and enjoying the nice weather, going to the dog parks and things like that. So it's, you know, really important to, uh, you know, uh, take your pets out on leashes and just, you know, be aware of your surroundings. Uh, certainly uh, incidences with wildlife, we see a lot of porcupines, a lot of groundhogs, different things like that. But also, you know, because we're in the summer months, we see a lot of, uh, you know, external parasites. So things like tick-borne diseases, we see fleas, we see, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, um, so you know, again, really important to make sure that you're taking care of your pets and preventative medicine and, and doing tick checks and, and things like that. And also, you know, making sure that, you know, you're taking care of preventative health. Speaking of dog parks, how safe are they? And how many injuries, especially, do you see coming in from them sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, overall, most dog parks are, are fairly safe. I think the biggest thing is you always have to remember that, you know, your your dog is, is an animal. And so certainly when you get, you know, uh, all sorts of different strange animals together, there's different scents, there's different sounds, there's different behaviors. And so, you know, they interact differently. So it's, it's important to, you know, be aware of how your dog interacts with other pets too. So, you know, certainly if they're not fond of other animals, dog park probably is not a good place for your dog to go to. So. Yeah. Let's talk about the different therapies you were saying. Um, Dr. Kumar, acupuncture and all the different. So how do those modalities work with pets? Well, they work well. They're very, very well tolerated. I believe in particular acupuncture, I think, is a great alternative therapy for dogs, particularly for pain management. Uh, a lot of these dogs are just chronic arthritis dogs, and it makes them just feel so much better. And you can avoid some of the uh, prescription medications, or at least have those medications work better in conjunction with acupuncture. Um, there's a lot that can be done with acupuncture and pain management, and again, that's where physical therapy or rehab therapy all ties in. So there's a lot of alternative things that can be done, which honestly are not even an alternative. They're all mainstream at this point. Yeah, we want to remind people that they can call in with their questions on whatever topic they have on their pets. Uh, and the number is 800-729-7532. Or you can email your question into smarttalk at org. So we were talking about 
CAT scans and different things. And I know, um, I believe, Rosmine's getting one for emergency services when somebody comes in, and you currently have one. When you're looking at um, CAT scans, how often do you use them for pets? How often do you find that they're needed? Well, in my practice, we use it a lot because of the cancer cases. We need to really define the extent of the cancer and can the surgeon remove what's there, or do we have to do other therapies beforehand? Mm -hmm. So we use it quite a bit. I think most of ours is for uh, cancer cases. Okay. And in your case, it's probably going to be emergency situations more than likely for Rosamond. Yeah, most definitely. So we see, you know, a variety of different things come in, anywhere from broken bones to pets that are coming in that might have, you know, uh, issues with their back or spinal cord. Uh, certainly, we do see cancer cases, too. And so, you know, it can be helpful in, in, in all of those cases. So... So we were talking a little bit earlier about the treatments and the therapies, especially when it comes to the oncology side of it. Some may ask, when do you stop? You know, when do you think um, that maybe you've gone a little too far with with trying to save? For example, if you have a 10-year-old dog who has cancer and their lifespan's maybe 12 years, what would you say to the patient? I know it's got to be really... um, angst-ridden for them to decide if they're spending the money to do this or if they're going to just live out the quality of life the best they can for their pet. Well, I think what you just said right there is the deciding factor, quality of life. Happily, age is not a disease. And there are 10-year-old dogs that are in pretty advanced conditions, arthritic, and just not feeling well, and uh, they're not going to do well long-term. And we get 10-year-old dogs that are just like puppies. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look at the individual patient and also as well as the cancer. What can we actually do for this, and what can we do for this reasonably long-term? A 10-year-old dog whose life expectancy is two years, very often we can treat, provide an adequate or very good quality of life, and they'll outlive their cancer. There's other cancers, unfortunately, that that's not going to happen. So really, all decisions have to be based on quality of life. Okay. And, you know, that's going to be a tough decision for someone to make as well. You know, I mean, I can't imagine that time when it comes. And it's come for many of us where you're going back and forth and deciding. It it is, but most people can look at their dog or their cat and they say, you're not happy. I know this is not in your best interest. We're going to stop. Okay, and we do have a caller. We have Rod Langster. What's your question? I have had squamous cell carcinoma for over three years and has had surgery and topical laser treatment and so forth. And I'm, I'm wondering whether there is any systemic treatment for that condition. Um, because we have reached the exact point you're just talking about, whether it is time to say that's enough. Well, I, I missed the beginning of that. Where was the the tumor? Uh, actually, it's it's all it, there are topical lesions, uh, especially on the front leg, chest area, under the chin, and near the eye, just scattered all over the the front uh, third of the cat. Okay. Well, some of these we can treat with what's known as metronomic therapy, where they go on low-dose oral drugs to try to control this from spreading and getting worse. Um, obviously, I haven't seen this, but in this case, it sounds like you know, this is chronic in advance, and we're not going to cure it, but we may be able to slow it down and keep them a little bit more comfortable for a longer period of time. Are they chemotherapeutic agents? Yes. Yes, they are, but they yeah. use in very low doses, uh, so we typically don't have to deal with the side effects that people are so familiar with and so concerned about. But it wouldn't really reverse an advanced condition? No, it wouldn't. It's okay. very unlikely, but it may slow it down and control it for a while. Okay. 
Thank you. All You're right. welcome. We thank you for your call. And we also have an email that came in from Kazan. They want to know, we have a dog age 10 that was diagnosed with lymphoma type B intermediate, and she is in complete remission. The oncologist that we were working with wants to add more treatments, and we decided to stop after the initial eight treatments because some of the side effects really knocked her down and had to go into our... Uh, vet for IV for for diarrhea issues. Uh, we are really torn on what to do. This is one of the hardest decisions we've ever had to make for our pet, and they love their pets like children. We just want her to live out her life with some dignity instead. Always going to the vet uh, really stressed her out, so please help. Uh, it's just kind of hard because I don't really know that what was used. Typically, if we have problems, we can use alternate drugs uh, that we can bring into the protocol, dose adjustments, uh, and different medications to try to control things. In general, for lymphoma, the protocol is very well tolerated. Um, occasionally, there, there are additional problems. But, um, you know, if, it, if there's a way to come up with an acceptable protocol where the side effects are very minimal to none, it would be very worthwhile continuing because lymphoma is still the most treatable cancer that we see in dogs. Okay, we want to thank you for that response and thank you for your email. You can hear today's show and previous editions of Smart Talk at WITF.org slash podcast or with the WITF app. You can also hear the entire program tonight at 7. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm ABC 27's Valerie Pritchett. And we're discussing advances in veterinary medicine with Drs. Christine Bunner with Ross Wayne Animal Hospital and Dr. Alan Kermeyer, Chief of Staff at the Animal Hospital of Rye and Marysville. Again, we welcome your questions and comments. Call us at 1-800-729-7532, or you can send us an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number 1-800-729-7532. And we do have an email, and this is coming in from Gloria. And she said, I had to have a beloved husky euthanized, and when he got the shot, he died very suddenly. I've been disturbed about this for five years. I thought he would go gently to sleep. Can you tell us about euthanasia and what we should ask for from a veterinarian? Yeah, that's a very good question. So unfortunately, you know, that's always a, a tough situation, and it's always hard to see. You know, it's it never gets any easier, and it's always rough because it's your you know beloved uh, pet and family member. So um, certainly, when we perform euthanasias, um, uh, we want the utmost comfort and and to make it as stress free and peaceful for the pet. So um, when performing euthanasias, typically we'll offer sedation beforehand to you know uh, make the pet less stressed and, mm. and relaxed, and so. Um, you know, the, the process itself is not painful, but, you know, again, the patient's in, in, in a different uh, uh, area that they're not used to. So, you know, certainly we try to relieve as much stress as possible. So, um, unfortunately, you know, not knowing the situation, unfortunately, a lot of pets that we see when we're euthanizing them are very sick. And so certainly, um, you know, the medications that we use can can work very quickly. So, um, and uh, once they're, they're nice and relaxed is that we will um, go ahead and uh, proceed uh, with euthanizing the animal. But again, it's it's, they don't feel anything, so it's a painless process. Thank you, Lori, for your question from Hubblestown, and uh, sorry for your loss as well. We were talking a little earlier, too, uh, in our green room about spaying and neutering, and there's been some discussion about that. So if you would like to take on the topic, it's like what age, uh, should it be done early, should it be done by certain like breed, size? 
That's something that has really come into the forefront in the last couple of years. Uh, if you're asking my thoughts on it based on the current research, particularly in large breed animals, I do not recommend neutering dogs or spaying dogs, at least until they've completed their full growth and their bones uh, are grown and the growth plates where the bones grow are closed. Um, if they can pursue it and not do this uh, till they're even older, we prefer it. There's been a lot of evidence showing that early spay neutering in the large breed dogs can cause all kinds of various cancers, very serious cancers, including lymphoma that we just talked about, uh, cruciate ligaments, which are knee injuries that are just very expensive and devastating to treat, and numerous other kinds of, of diseases. So my recommendation, particularly in the large breed dogs, is to wait if possible. Question for you, Dr. B. When it comes to times to take your dog to the ER overnight, like emergency things, what are symptoms or things that I should automatically say, yeah, it's time to go to the ER clinic? Yeah, definitely. Good question. So certainly if your pet is experiencing any problem with breathing, um, you know, that's a, a big one that we see. Um, they just seem like they can't catch their breath. Um, they're really struggling. Um, you know, the, you might look at their gums and they look pale or kind of bluish. It's definitely, you know, should be getting to uh, your pet to the ER center to be evaluated. Certainly pets that have uh, uh, breathing distress, you know, certainly could have issues with their lungs. They could have issues with their heart. Um, certainly if we're having, you know, nonstop vomit, um, you know, certainly uh, the, the, the concern for that they've eaten something uh, that may be stuck or something that may be toxic even. So um, certainly having them evaluated. Um, you know, certainly our larger dogs, if they're trying to vomit, but they're not producing anything and seems mm -hmm. like their bellies are distended again, that's another big one we see where they, they develop bloat in their bellies and that's definitely life-threatening. Um, and our cats, if, if they're unable to urinate, if, you know, certainly. So those are all uh, some of the more common emergencies that we see, but certainly we're here 24-7, so you can always call us too. You know, we're there. If you're not sure whether or not to bring them in, we're here so that we can answer questions and say, hey, you know, this this sounds concerning. It's it's enough for you to call us that you're concerned, so we're concerned for you too. So we want to make sure the pet's okay. Let's talk about toxic items, because a lot of people don't realize the stuff that we eat is not necessarily good for our dogs. I know, I think grapes, onions, there's like a list of things, and especially this time of the year when you have picnics and people outside. Um, what could we give a warning for when it comes to dogs and cats and what they should not have? Definitely. So, um, you, you know, you hit the, the nail on the head right there. Grapes is a big one and raisins. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, I think part of it is that we haven't identified exactly what it is in, in you know, grapes and raisins that, that causes toxicity, but it has the potential to cause, you know, damage to the kidneys. Um, chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate's uh, a big one. Mm -hmm. So, especially around Christmas and Easter time. So, chocolate itself certainly uh, acts as almost uh, like caffeine for our pets. And so, it can be very toxic and cause seizures and heart arrhythmias and so on. Um, onions. Uh, onions are also not very good. There's quite a few plants too. Um, you know, certainly lilies are a big one for cats. Um, lilies can be deadly. So, you know, certainly if you have a cat and you get a lily, make sure it's far up away from the cat. So We have a lot of questions coming in. So we have been on the phone from Harrisburg and he wants to talk about Addison's disease. Hi, how are you doing? Um, great show. Thank you for, uh, for doing this. I was hoping you might be able to touch on uh, Addison's disease uh, in dogs. I have a, a dog that was diagnosed with Addison's disease, and uh, um, there's very little known about it, and I'm hoping that somebody might have some experience with it. 
Well, we do. Take it off the air. Thank you. We do see quite a bit of it in my practice because it is a referral that's not common in dogs. It is out there. It's no different than a disease in people. Um, Once it's diagnosed, yes, this can be something fatal if it goes undiagnosed, but it's also very easy to treat, and the dogs can live out a completely normal life as long as they get the medication that they need. So I wouldn't panic and think your dog has a death sentence because it was diagnosed with Addison. It's actually, once it's diagnosed, it's just medication that they stay on two different drugs, and it's very, very well controlled. Although it'll never be cured, your dog can certainly have a normal life. So go ahead and treat it, and don't be afraid of it. Thank you for that call. We have another one from George, and he says, when I was growing up, we had kennel ration and Alpo. I don't think I've heard of the first <laughs> I haven't either. Dogs live until 12 and 14 years old. Now we're told to give them all these premium dog foods with all sorts of supplements. They still live to 12 or 14 years old. Are the new foods just commercial hype? To some degree, they are. Things like grain-free, which they push on people right now, and grain-free is just not an issue in dogs. So some of it is commercial. Uh, In general, the quality of food is far better than it was before. Um, But again, you've got to read labels. You've got to do a little research and and look into each individual food. But there are far better foods now, and dogs are a lot healthier for it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, certainly they've they've done a really good job with making foods better for our pets. Um, you know, certainly we have AFCO, which um, oversees um, our, our pet foods um, and making sure that they're good quality. They do the testing and they ensure, you know, what's on the label um, is what's in the bag. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever I have someone asking about food, you know, that's one of the, the things that I direct them toward is make sure that it's AFCO approved because, you know, you're getting that quality there and you know what's in the bag is truly in there. So I think there's also an individual, you you know how each pet does on the food too you know certainly they could eat the best quality food and it may not agree with them and so certainly there might be something there that says okay well maybe we need to try something different a lot of times we're seeing a lot of overweight pets too so it's always really important to you know maintain a certain weight correct yes yeah. definitely Absolutely. so yeah we see you know that about two-thirds of our pets unfortunately have become overweight um, and so you know we feel uh, the need to uh, you know also share our food with them and um, you know certainly they have the the great puppy dog eyes and kitty eyes that you know beg for more food but however you know we're, we're uh, overdoing it and certainly we're seeing a lot more diseases because of it things like diabetes and um, you have to remember that our pets are much smaller than we are and so don't require as many calories so we have to be very careful so exercise for them as well right absolutely and I, I, I'm probably a little out of my area but it's the same thing in children I mean mm-hmm. ch- childhood obesity is just out of control yeah, it's not the, the quality of food. It's, it's, <laughs> it's right. also how much. It's a twofer. I walk with yeah. my pet. I get my exercise. The pet gets its exactly. exercise. We also have a question, and this is a big issue in this area, ticks. And this comes from Joseph, and he is in Elizabethtown. So any special recommendations for tick prevention products? And does the Lyme vaccine in pets work 100%? And I know we're going to say vaccines are never 100%, correct? Exactly. Yeah, no vaccine is 100%. So we definitely see a lot of Lyme disease in this area. Certainly, um, you know, a lot of people feel that ticks, uh, we only see them during the summertime. 
ticks, especially the deer tick, is active all year long. So, you know, it's really important that we're sticking to, you know, tick prevention. It's not just, you know, treating with a topical or a collar or it means that we're doing daily tick checks. You know, um, you know, no, same thing. No collar, no preventative is going to be 100 percent. You know, certainly it can't control the entire environment, especially if your dog is active in the woods or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. So it also means, you know, keeping brush down in the yard and around the house. You know, that's exactly where ticks love to live, trying to keep wildlife out of the yard, which is you can't do that 100 yeah, percent. However, but, I have a groundhog you know. who's persistent. <laughs> so but, you know, little things like that, too, can also be very helpful. The Lyme vaccine can we can use it as an aid. However, you know, again, going back to vaccines are not 100 percent. So, you know, it is also using those other things in conjunction to help prevent, you know, um, your pet getting ticks first and then being bitten. So. Okay. One thing that people don't realize, they'll say when they come in, well, we don't have any deer in our area. We're, we're in a development. In Pennsylvania, uh, the mice actually are the greatest carrier of the deer tick wow. and the infected ticks. And you can't keep mice out of your yard. No. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh. Um, and then do we talk about like the different preventatives? I think that was the second half. Like I know there are, there's arresto collars, there's frontline, there's so many different products. Yeah. I am one. I do not like topicals. Uh, mm-hmm. I find that while there are some that are effective, most aren't anymore. And the biggest problem is those topicals must be on the skin. Anything that goes on the hair is not going to work. Um, they were great products when they first came out, but this far better. Like you had mentioned, Ceresto Collars is a phenomenal product. For people that don't like collars, there are internal products like NexGuard, a once-a-month okay. pill that's extremely effective. And we have a question in from a caller who could not stay on the phone, so we're going to answer this quickly because we're going to have to get out soon. But cats and what they eat, simple to keep cats to eat, high protein, very low carbs, what a mouse is made of, needs lots of water, please discuss. <laughs> Did you get that? It was cryptic. <laughs> but I think I I think she's talking about keeping cats fit maybe and keeping them cause most of like what they eat in the wild. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Our cats, you know, it's always uh, uh, tough because I think our cats like to sleep, you know, 22 hours out of the day. And so certainly, um, you know, we tend to free feed our cats more. So again, just kind of that overfeeding, um, making sure that we're exercising them, you know, ultimately making sure that we're finding toys that they're interacting with, um, taking time, you know, whether it's a laser pointer or a feather stick. And so trying to keep them active. Mm-hmm. Hydration. Hydration is a really big one, too. So um, we tend to use a lot of kibble with our cats, but it's actually been found that, you know, using either canned foods or, you know, the, they have water fountains for cats and things like that, making sure that they're well hydrated so to help with their fitness, overall fitness. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We want to thank all of our guests who are here today. We have plenty of questions, and I'm sure we'll have plenty more. Dr. Christine Bunner of Rossmine Animal Hospital and Alan Kermeyer, <laughs> Chief of Staff at the Animal Hospital of Ryan Marysville. You can hear today's show and previous editions of Smart Talk at WITF.org slash podcast or with the WITF app. You can also hear the entire program tonight at 7. I'm Valerie Pritchett with ABC 27. Thanks for being with us on tomorrow's program. Franklin and Marshall's Dr. G. Terry Madonna will examine the state's medical marijuana program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.